just have quiet and reverence just for even a, a moment um, on, a, on a Sunday morning when we enjoy the Lord's Supper together. We think back and ponder the uh, implications of Christ's sacrifice for us. Thank you to the worship team and um, for all that they do week in and week out and helping lead us in worship and giving us uh, free, giving freely of their gifts of, of musicianship and vocal abilities, all of, all of these things that they give uh, freely week in and week out. We thank, um, we're thankful to God for them. Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to go through verses 12 to 17. Um, notice up on the screen, it's a little different than what's in your bulletin. In your bulletin, it's the glorious death of sin, part 3. On the screen, it's the glorious death of sin, part 3a. Again, again, as I dig into the study, I, there's too much here to just rush through to get all the way through uh, verses 12 to 17. I'm only going to get through verse 14 today. Um, so come back next week. I believe I'm up next week again. Uh, and we will go through the rest of 15, 16, and 17. Last time we were all together here in Colossians, we talked about verses 5 to 11 in chapter 3, and I explained how Paul uses the imagery of changing clothes, and they're actually still here. I said I would throw them away, but remember I held up those old swim trunks that I used to wear? And uh, I, uh, we were talking about the imagery here of, of changing clothes. Paul's telling the Colossians, and by extension, all Christians through time, that because they had been transformed by placing their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus and having been baptized into him, they needed to wear outer garments to fit their new identities in Christ. He had run through a list of sensual sins and a list of social sins, if you recall, and he told them to put them all aside. Take those old clothes off. They no longer fit you properly. Since your inner self is changed... Stop wearing these things. Stop wearing immorality and impurity and, and passions and evil desire and greed and anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. Stop lying to one another. And remember, as the title spells out, this series that we're going through in Colossians 3 is all about killing sin in our lives. It's about overcoming. It's about finding victory over our flesh and bringing that flesh into Submission to our new identity in Christ. Taking off the old clothes is essential. But we can't just go about disrobed after we've removed these old clothes. Having removed those old sinful fabrics, we today in our message are concerned with the verbal, behavioral, and attitudinal clothes that Christians should be putting on. Right? We take off the old, we put on the new. The changed inner man demands a new wardrobe. So that the reality of the new man may be seen by those who encounter us. I ran across this in numerous sources as I was studying this week. That it could be that Paul was using imagery in these verses that would be reminding his early readers of their baptisms. Apparently it was a common practice in the early church that when a person was baptized, they were given a new robe, all of white, to wear on that day and in days following. If this is the case, then the accompanying context that mentions baptism back in chapter 2 makes all the more sense. Um, the new white robe that they received symbolized these new attributes of purity, of righteousness that they were to be putting on today that, that should adorn their new lives. So this imagery of putting on new clothes is one that still speaks to us clearly today when we think about it. The clothes we wear, or our manner of dress, still sends a message to those around us, doesn't it? People that see us, they can tell something about us when they look at the way we're dressed. If you think of it, when you go to your place of work, you may have a uniform that you wear. And this communicates your association with your employer, doesn't it? Possibly it, it, it communicates the type of industry that you work in. When Gideon puts on his Culver's uniform, he's telling folks, I'm associated with Culver's. I am their employee, right? We speak often of two classes of workers in our society based on apparel language. You think about this? Blue-collar workers and white-collar workers, right? Blue-collar workers are the ones that we often see wearing looser-fitting clothes that permit more mobility for doing the more physical tasks that comprise their jobs. 
White-collar workers are seen dressing in suits or, or business casual attire, which is more suitable for office positions or marketing and sales-oriented positions. Medical professionals wear the ubiquitous scrubs, right? Doctors have their white coats. When we dress a certain way, we communicate certain things. We communicate our association. Our non-work clothes also communicate much about us, too. I'm not, I'm not one to wear jerseys very often or ever of any sort, and the main reason I don't is because I'm completely uninterested in professional sports, right? I'm kind of the outlier. A lot of guys are really interested in sports. I'm just not. I just never have been. I love playing sports, but I, don't, I just don't have time to follow a team and follow players and things like that. So I don't ever wear jerseys unless someone gives me one and it's free and I don't think about it. Um, so you might see me, though, wearing plaid shirts or blue jeans and Columbia hiking shoes, which, you know, I do love to go camping. I love to go outside in the woods, and I go to love to go hiking. You might see me wearing a Frisbee shirt or something like that, because I love Frisbees, right? I want to tell the whole world I love Frisbee golf. Anyway, um, I think of David Severance, who's creating a new company, Birding Wear, free advertisement, Dave, um, um, to communicate, hey, I, this is an interest that I have, Right? I'm interested in bird watching. And I don't want to make, a, make a too fine a point of it here because there are plenty of clothes I put on just because they're in my drawer, right? They fit me and they're there. Like my Coca-Cola shirts or my Star Wars shirts. I, I put those on and I don't think anything about it. Um, I only wear them because Mandy picked them out for me. They were cheap and on clearance or something like that and they fit. But I've had Star Wars fanboys come up to me when I'm wearing a Star Wars shirt and try to talk to me about The Empire Strikes Back or something, you know? And, and uh, it, that kind of proves my point, right? We communicate something by what we wear. We communicate sometimes the things we love. We communicate our associations with the things that we wear. There's nuance communicated in how we dress. Ladies, think of this for a moment. There's a small but clear line between dressing so as to tastefully display your beauty and modesty and attempting to seduce people, isn't there? You all know where that line is, too, instinctively. All the men in the room, too, know where that line is, instinctively. So we move back to the point of Paul's using the imagery of clothing here. The Christian's spiritual clothes communicate their association with Christ. It communicates their new love for Christ, the clothes that they wear. It matters how they dress. They need new clothes to fit their new identities. The new clothes provide solid evidence that an internal change has occurred and that it's real. So our path forward to today is, is just as follows. It's very simple. We're going to first talk about four motives that Paul gives for why we need to put on new clothes. And that's in verses 12 to 13. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to discuss the new garments themselves that Paul mentions. That's in verses 12 through 14. And third, we're going to discuss the relational ramifications of these new clothes. So let me read the text for us, and then I'll pray. I'll go ahead and read all the way through 17. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the, the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let me open us in prayer. Father, I come before you this morning um, thankful for what... Um, you have shown me in your word and thankful for the opportunity to share it with my brothers and sisters here today. Father, my words are weak. Your word is powerful. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that your word would ring out and impress us in ways that it had not before we came this morning. I pray, God, we would see 
your word is more valuable when we leave today than we did when we first came here today. I pray, Father, that we would love your word and respect your word more as a result of us being together today. So please, Father, use these meager efforts that I've put forward in in presenting this and preparing this message and, and use them for your glory and grow your kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first off, verses 12 to 13, our motive for putting on the new clothes. Paul starts off this verse with three of the four motives that give Christians reasoning and inspiration for putting on new righteous clothes. And these motives are things that God has done for us that we ought to respond to. Things that He's done for us that ought to cause us to respond to Him. And our response should be to change in light of these things that God has done. Verse 12 begins, So, as those who have been chosen of God. And the doctrine of divine election is here in view. God chose you to be His. This should motivate you. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And think of this. His selection of you is not like a sports team's drafting process where all of your favorable attributes were weighed by God before He picked you to be on His team, to be His own. God does not elect people based on their own merit or giftedness. He elects people for His own purpose and will. He offers the saving message of the gospel to all the world, but many will not receive it. Rather, in persistent rebellion against God, they refuse and they hate the gospel message. That they are separated from God because of their sin. They are infected with a cancer of sin that rots and kills their souls. But that there's a physician in Jesus who will heal them, who will bring them into relationship with God the Father and save them from their sinful selves. This is the gospel message. Yet those who do receive this message of salvation are the chosen ones. They're the elect. Their receiving of the gift of salvation does not merit anything. For apart from the gift of God's salvation, they would be just as lost as the rest of mankind. But those who receive it simply have understood, with God's help, how desperately they need salvation. So they humble themselves as beggars to take this lavish gift of God's grace. Grace. God's grace. A grace that is greater than all our sins. A grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Three things I feel I need to say on this issue. And they're not going to settle the age-old debate between the sovereignty and the free will camps. But for me, they keep me from dividing with Christians on this issue. And it's very short. And the first thing is this. God chooses according to His sovereign and gracious purposes. And the second thing, man must freely respond to this offer of salvation. And three, God gets all the credit and glory. And man gets none. What a humbling and an exhilarating reality though for those of us who are Christians. To be chosen. And honestly, I I can't even wrap my head around this reality. When I think of all that I've done in this life that dishonors Christ and exalts myself, and when I think of all of the mingling and the mixing that I've done with the corruption and the perversion of this world, I cry out and wonder, God, why would you choose me? Why would you choose me? There's not one thing I've ever done in all my life that deserves your selecting me. And if, since knowing you, I've done anything good, it's, it's only by your work in me that it happened. How can it be that I've been chosen? I hope that resonates with you. I hope that when you ponder the fact that you've been chosen, it motivates you to change. This is what Paul hoped it would do in sharing it this way. But let's move on to his second motive. The next word in verse 12 is holy. And this just means set apart, Right? like a fine and expensive bottle of wine that's set away in a special place only to be used for that perfect occasion. 
And I really don't like that illustration, but I thought, you know, after writing it, I'm like, you know, I'm going to leave it just to let people know. I thought of this bad illustration, and it's not the best way to illustrate this setting apart, right? This bottle of wine. It's, there's an element of usefulness in it, but I don't want to communicate to you that you're just a special bottle of booze in God's wine cellar somewhere, right? <laughs> so that illustration might communicate value and worth, but not purity, right? And relationships, which I believe the word holy communicates, right? I think a better illustration for being set apart or being holy is the illustration of a marriage. And so I'm indebted actually to Warren Wiersbe for this illustration. Actually, Wiersbe's commentary on this, this whole section was especially good, so you may hear more of him as the sermon progresses. But let me quote him right here. He says, Just as the marriage ceremony sets apart a man and a woman for each other exclusively, so salvation sets the believer apart exclusively for Jesus Christ. Would it not be a horrible thing at the end of a wedding to see the groom run off with the maid of honor? It's just as horrible to contemplate the Christian living for the world and the flesh. I think that's good. Isn't that good? Harold said amen, so it's good. So Paul here in Colossians, in this context, is talking about putting off old sinful habits and putting on new and righteous thoughts, attitudes, speech, and behaviors. Why should we do this? Well, one reason is, that ought to motivate us, is the fact that we have that we, we have received Jesus have been set apart for Himself. Set apart by God for Himself. We are holy. We need to live like it. So the third motive, the next word in verse 12, beloved. Beloved. If you're in Christ, you are the object of God's special love. The Holman Christian Standard and the NIV say, dearly loved at this point. You are His beloved. Wiersbe says here, when an unbeliever sins, he's a creature breaking the laws of the Holy Creator and Judge. But when a Christian sins, he's a child of God breaking the loving heart of his Father. Doesn't the cross where Jesus died Shout the love of God for you. Doesn't the communion emblems that we just took shout the love of God for you? As we sat in the quiet preparing to drink from the cup, I hope the love of God roared out in your heart this morning. What an extent He went to to prove His love for you. He chose you from before the foundation of the world, knowing the price ahead of time that He would have to pay to redeem you. Yet He willingly paid it because He loves you. Jesus, more than His own earthly life, loves you. He loves His children. Let His love for you penetrate your hard heart and produce in you a love that returns toward Him. Let the Father's heart of love for you draw your own heart to Him in love in return. And let that love of yours be proven in obedience to His commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And incidentally, if you're an astute student of your Bible, you'll notice that these three distinctives that we've gone over so far, chosen, chosen, holy, and beloved, He uses these to describe the mostly Gentile church that He's writing to in Colossae. But they're the exact same ones that God used in the Old Testament to describe His relationship with Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Holy, one. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. Chosen for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you. Chosen, holy, loved. There are numerous other passages in the Old Testament attesting to this. This is the way God described His relationship with Israel. What's clear here is that there's a change that has taken place in God's activity among mankind. What was once true of that elect nation 
is now true of all who come to faith in Christ. Now, Romans 9 through 11 tells us that Israel has been temporarily set aside and that the Gentiles are being grafted in during this church age that we lived in. The saved in the church are now chosen. They're now holy. They're now beloved. Very important and worth mentioning here. So let's move on, though, to the fourth and the final motive that Paul gives for putting on new clothes. And it's actually found in verse 13. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So our dress should be different because we've been forgiven by God. Recall the imagery of that forgiveness that Paul used back in chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Certificate of debt, that was the imagery that he used. In other words, before Christ, we had an ever-increasing ledger of indebtedness that was requiring payment. Each sin, racking up a tally of punishment, snowballing in severity, ultimately leading to an eternity in flames and wailing in hell, gnashing our teeth alone with nothing but our agony beside us, hearing only the screams of others suffering a similar fate, no relief, no end in sight, no hope, no light, not a hint for even a second of pleasure or joy or rest, only vaguely remembering what they felt like for a moment in this life. And that would only add to the torment of never being able to experience them again. But hallelujah, someone intervened, didn't he? Someone came down and he took that lengthy ledger that we all had, that lengthy ledger of indebtedness, of condemning sin that we had all committed, and he nailed it to his own cross as he died. All so that you could be forgiven. Your debt could be cleared You know, Isaiah 43.25 tells us that God remembers our sins no more. But I'll never be able to forget my sins. I don't think you should either. You should look at that ledger from time to time. That same ledger that Jesus nailed to the cross and remember what a pit you were in before He saved you. But when you do that, never fail. When you look at that old ledger, never fail to glorify Jesus with thanksgiving for what's written on the bottom of that, which is paid in full. Amen? Amen. You don't owe that debt anymore. Jesus paid it. And this ought to motivate you to please Him forever. You see, we, we can't really change our clothes unless we've been changed within We can't really change our clothes until we've let these four truths sink into our hearts without understanding these four things. The changes that we make in in our lives, they would only be superficial. They would only be contrived. God chose us. He set us apart. He loved us. And we're forgiven. These things motivate us toward growth as the Spirit impresses them ever more upon our hearts. I hope you're motivated by these things today when you ponder them. You've been chosen. You're set apart. You're beloved. You're forgiven. Move toward changing those garments that you wear. So let's move on now to what specifically we need to put on. What do those new garments look like? What are those new garments? Verses 12 to 14. The first thing, put on a heart of compassion. The King James Version translates this, the bowels of mercy. Right, which I kind of think we should bring back language like that. Instead of, I love you from all my heart, I, I love you from all my bowels. I just, <laughs> just think that's funny. I, I, anyway, um, when I was a child, uh, uh, when I reading this, I, I probably pronounced it bowls of mercy. That's not it, though. It's bowels. It, it refers to guts or intestines. And it's a, it's a Hebrew, Hebraism in the Greek, 
which is basically it means that it's a word with a very Hebrew characteristic that came about likely because of Hebrew influence on the Greek language. And so the, the Hebrew bowels or guts is where deep emotion was felt. So we translate it heart now because we can quickly, quickly get to the meaning of what's there. Um, and that meaning is this, that um, compassion or mercy toward others ought to be deeply ingrained or felt at the core of our beings. The word compassion, it can mean pity. It can mean sympathy or mercy. Jesus used the same word for compassion to describe the Father in Luke 6.36. He said, be merciful or compassionate just as your Father is merciful. The verb form of, of that word for, for heart or bowels is used often of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you, if you do a word study on that, it's all over Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when you encounter that phrase in the English, it reads this, Jesus felt compassion, or Jesus was moved with compassion for certain people. Like Matthew 9.36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So as Christians, this deep sense of compassion or pity for others in their suffering ought to characterize us. We must not be indifferent to suffering. We should be concerned to meet people's needs as we are able to, especially amongst those in the fellowship of believers, but with those outside as well. We have hearts of compassion. This is the first virtue. The next virtue that we should put on is kindness. Kindness. The Greek adjective version of this word for kindness is the same one that Jesus uses in Matthew 11, verse 30, when He said, For my yoke is easy or kind, and my burden is light. The New Living Translation renders that verse in Matthew 11, verse 30 as, My yoke is easy to bear. You see, if you're a kind person, you're easy to be around, right? You, you exhibit a godly characteristic when you are kind. People like being around people who are kind. Luke 6.35 says, But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. We ought to be kind to ungrateful and evil people as well. Romans 2.4 says, do you, not think, or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. We don't think often of that, but that what initiated our acknowledging our need for God and realizing how deeply we need Him was the fact that He had been kind to us and we realized we had been unkind to Him. The Greco-Roman world in which the Colossian believers lived was in a desperate need of people with compassion and kindness in their hearts. It was a dog-eat-dog existence back then. Life was not valued. Manners were atrocious in many cases. The fittest people in society survived and thrived just fine, just like they always have. But a great mass of humanity languished under inhumane treatment in the world that Paul wrote to. Our own world is becoming ever more like it each day. And the long-term remedy for it today, as it was back then, was for Christians to exhibit the Christ-like characteristics of compassion and kindness toward others. You know, I remember when I got my first job as a teenager at Ross IGA, and I made a pretty big mistake one night. I walked on a freshly waxed floor. Unwittingly. I didn't do it on purpose. It wasn't like, oh, there's wax, I'm going to go dance on the floor. No, I accidentally on my way out the door walked on a spot that was freshly waxed. And the other associate who had just mopped the wax onto the floor berated me and he cussed me in the most humiliating way. I was ready to walk out and never come back after I was treated like that. But it was so refreshing to be treated with kindness by my boss, who understood, right? He defended me and called the other guy off and made him stand down 
It was so good to know that I could go home that night to a home where my parents and my family would be kind to me. Kindness makes an incredible difference. But sadly, there are many in our world who very, rare, very rarely get to experience kindness from another person. Isn't that sad to think? But think of this. How refreshing will it be for them when they encounter you? If you're wearing this new garment of kindness that Jesus gave you, and they meet you, it's going to change their life. Put on compassion. Put on kindness. Let's move on. The next one, Paul says to put on humility. So, speaking of that Greco-Roman context in which Paul ministered and wrote, it was interesting for me to learn this week as I studied this that numerous sources indicated how negatively the Greco-Roman world viewed humility. In fact, when you dig through classical Greek literature, which I didn't, I just trusted others had done, um, when you dig through classical Greek literature, that the word that's translated humility here is never almost never used in a positive sense except in the New Testament. Humility was not a virtue until Jesus came along. Isn't that interesting? And what was admired in those days, in those Greco-Roman days, was, tr- was pride and domination. Again, we're getting more and more like this in our own day. We increasingly gravitate in our culture toward those who are strong and assertive. People who can lay the smack down in an argument and, and leave their opponents undone. We marvel at MMA fighters and UFC championships and reminiscent of old gladiator duels in the Roman Empire in those old arenas. And we root for those who can subdue their opponents with vicious brutality. Humility is harder to exhibit in this day. And it's less respected than it used to be. Yet, it's a trait that Jesus loves. And He exhibited it Himself. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Philippians 2, 6 says, Being found in the appearance of man, He, Jesus, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Later in Philippians Chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Therefore you should do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, humility is not being servile. It's not thinking poorly of oneself as the Romans interpreted it, and as our culture increasingly interprets it today. What humility is, is having the proper estimation of yourself in the will of God. It's very closely related to the next garment that Paul mentions, which is this one, gentleness. Gentleness. We're supposed to put on gentleness. Early English translations like the King James Version render this term meekness rather than gentleness. Either one is fine. Meekness or gentleness is not weakness or spinelessness. Rather, it's power under control. That's what it is. Wearsby, again, notes that this word is used in this way. And let me quote him. It's used to describe a soothing wind. It's used to describe a healing medicine. It's used to describe a cult that had been broken. In each instance, there's power. A wind can become a storm. Too much medicine can poison and kill. A horse can break loose. But this power is under control. Last night, I was with uh, Buddy and Ashley, and Buddy was telling a story about a horse that got out of control that he was trying to lead to a pasture. And it, as it got out of control, it, it threw a kick out and it grazed his leg. And he was talking about just the amazing power of that kick. If you get kicked by a horse, it's, it's no joke. It can kill you if it hits you in the right spot. But generally, if a horse is well-tamed and, and trained, it's power under control. So it is with the gentle person that that Paul is describing here. They have power, but they restrain it. They don't reveal all of it. They understand that the, the full use of power will not engender true peace and friendly relations or loyalty to them. 
MacArthur puts it this way. He says the gentle person has the willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. Subduing an enemy by use of force, it might eliminate the nuisance, but it will never make a friend of them. The gentle person realizes this. And isn't this precisely what Jesus did? When we contemplate the wrath and the punishment that Jesus could dole out upon us with complete justification to do so, yet He restrains Himself and He treats us with gentleness instead of force. Is this not one of the great lessons of the Incarnation? Jesus, God the Son becoming man, that God the Son was willing to lower and limit Himself with all human limitations in the person of of Jesus Christ so as to reach us and to convey to us that He is humble and that He is gentle and that He extends His hands in an offer of friendship to us. Us who were His enemies. Romans 5, 8-10 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So next, the next garment we need to put on is patience. Patience. Early English versions Again, use the word long-suffering here. Long-suffering. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. Patience is not having a short fuse. A patient person is one who has learned how to apply James 1.19, which is they're quick to listen, they're slow to speak, they're slow to become angry. They realize their tendency to be quickly angered is not the righteousness that God requires, and so they suppress that sinful tendency. They bring their flesh into submission. They don't act or speak impulsively. Rather, they exhibit self-control. It's not that they never get angry. They do. And it's good too. It's that they get angry at the right times. A patient person gets angry at the right times. I remember when I used to lead Young Life years ago, I took a group of kids from Hamilton High School to camp at Rockbridge in Virginia. And the boys were acting pretty rowdy as the week was progressing. And I was patient with them, probably more patient than I should have been, probably giving them a longer leash than I should have given them. And another leader that was on that trip with me from another school was a guy named Mike Murphy. Some of you know who Mike Murphy is. Um, I had only been a leader for about a year at this point when I took them to this camping trip, so I was kind of a newbie. Mike had been a leader for over 10 years, and he shared with me a tactic for reining the boys in that I think worked masterfully. You see, Mike, who was also a patient person, was going to lose his cool on purpose in such a way so that the boys that I was leading would overhear him chewing me out, right? So we kind of set this up. It was very funny, actually. It was, um, they all overheard it. Um, this would allow me, though, this tactic would allow me to continue to display patience with the boys while they were indirectly being called out by another leader for their bad behavior. And to tell you the truth, it worked really well. They were listening at the door. I was right outside the door, and Mike Murphy just started, What are you doing? You need to step up your game. This is nonsense. Those kids are acting crazy. And it's your responsibility. Whatever he was saying. But the point came across, and the, the room got very quiet behind me. Eric's getting in trouble. I, I like Eric. I don't want him to get in trouble. Okay. So they actually behaved a whole lot better the rest of the week. So anyway, when we are long-suffering, when we are patient, we're behaving like Jesus did. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. 1 Peter 3, 14-15 says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him, in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. None of us would be saved apart from God's patience with us. Apart from Christ's patience, none of us would, would be saved. 
It's fitting, given the context of this verse, that all of these characteristics are ones that Christ perfectly exemplified. Colossians 3.10, remember last sermon, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created them. So I've said numerous times in weeks past, when God sees us after becoming a Christian, He sees our inner renewed man, which is fashioned in the image of Jesus. Jesus already exhibited all of these characteristics perfectly. He already had all these virtues. He already wore these clothes in His earthly life in perfection. And when those around us see it, when they see us adopting these behaviors, when they see us putting on these clothes, they see the behavioral and the attitudinal garments that we wear, we want to dress in such a way that the world sees Jesus on the outside, just like God sees Jesus on the inside. This is the importance of our changing clothes. Putting off the old clothes, putting on the new ones. So, let's move on to the next part of the passage. Here in verse 13, Paul explains some relational ramifications of these new clothes. Right? Put these new clothes on. This is how it's going to look in your relationships with people when you put these things on. This is what it's going to look like. If you've truly put on the attributes described in verse 12, then what that is going to look like in, in our day-to-day living amongst uh, the other Christians and non-Christians in your life, this is what it's going to look like. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So that first ramification that Paul mentions is that you will bear with one another. Forbearance, right, is the word we can use here. Forbearance is the immediate result of putting on patience. It's the ability to stay kind and compassionate. It's the ability to stay humble and gentle, even when the behavior of another person tempts you to be firm and harsh and to lose your compassion because they're offending or annoying to you. Bearing with one another means you're able to hold up or or hold back your desire to lash out in retaliation. It's the character trait that we must exhibit when we're persecuted for our faith, when we're threatened, when we're injured. But it's also the characteristic that we need to exhibit daily, practice it daily in our relationships in the body of Christ. Here in the context, Paul is talking about relationships within the believer's fellowship there in Colossae, which is clear by the words that he uses here, one another. When he says that word one another, he's thinking of one another within the church. And contextually, he's thinking of the churches. You can tell that because you recall by, you go back to verse 11, he was talking about the oneness of the fellowship despite all of the diversity of backgrounds that could be impediments to that unity. Remember, he talked about Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. He talked about all those things and the the need to be united and one in spite of all those external differences. In verse 14, he talks about the bond of unity. In verse 15, he talks about being one in body, being in one body, I should say. And in verse 16, he talks about teaching and admonishing one another. Again, so he's using collective language here to talk about their fellowship. In this verse, he's talking about bearing with one another in the church. The context is relationships within the church. Of course, there's applicability outside of the church, but Paul's specifically concerned here with the church. And this tells me something encouraging. This whole idea that we need to bear with one another. And it's this. Paul understood that the believers in Colossae were works in progress. They were engaged in this process, which we've talked about in weeks past, this process of removing those old garments and putting them aside and grabbing those new garments and putting them on. This new righteous raiment. They were taking off the grave clothes and putting on the grace clothes. That's another great Warren Wearsby quote. Perfection is not what Paul was expecting. But he was expecting progress and and growth and maturity. He knew that in the real world, people get under each other's skin. They rub one another the wrong way. People grate on each other. People can be annoying. You don't have to bear with people who are compassionate and kind and gentle and humble and patient. 
these types of folks lighten the burdensome loads of other people. They're easy to be around. Everyone wants to be around folks like that. None of us are there yet perfectly, though, right? Amen? I'm not. I'm not. So I know that this is true. This next thing. Um, Because I know this is the case, that none of us has arrived perfectly at maturity yet, then I know that this is true. You are annoying. You hear that? You're annoying. It may be hard to hear, but it's true. You're hard to bear sometimes. You may find, maybe be fine in most people's eyes, but likely there is probably certain people that find it hard to bear with you. Uh, a number of years back when trail life was kind of a new thing, I went on a camping trip with some of my sons and some other men. And in the midst of this camping trip, one of my sons was behaving in such a way that was annoying me to no end. And I confided in one of the dads that was there. And the dad had knew me for a long time. And you know, one of the things he said to me uh, when I mentioned this to him was, you know, he, he's kind of acting like you. <laughs> like, oh... What? Come on. You're annoying me right now. But it was true. I'm annoying. I annoy myself sometimes. My kids are well aware of the, the, the ways that I'm annoying. I, I kind of find it fun to, to pick on them. And I like to take it beyond what it ought, as far as it ought to go. They like it for a little bit, but then it's like, enough, Dad. I do the same thing with my wife. I, I'm annoying sometimes. Yeah. And the sooner I realize this about myself, the sooner I can change, right? The sooner you realize this about yourself, that you are annoying at times, the sooner progress will be made, right? A person who has put on the garment of humility can hear what I just said and not get offended, right? Right? They understand that even they can be hard to bear at times. And they can be contributors to some relational problems. This tells me something else, though, that I think is worth noting here. Not everything needs to be called out and rebuked. Not everything. If we are to bear with one another, then that means we ought not to be easily offended. We should be ones who are not overly emotionally sensitive. We ought not be snowflakes, to use common current-day parlance, right? We should give people the benefit of the doubt. We should give them grace. Especially if something happens that's uncharacteristic of of a person's normal behavior. In some cases, you may need to wait and see if an issue persists before a confrontation happens. Bearing with one another implies that we're willing to endure a degree of offense and not seek retribution in every case. Paul describes a situation in the Corinthian church um, that was going on. They were unwilling to bear with one another. So much so that they were taking matters to earthly and secular courts. Taking each other and suing each other. One of the things he says in that passage in verses 7 to 8 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. He says, speaking to those who took others in the church to court unnecessarily. Actually, then it is already a defeat for you, he says, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Paul was talking about forbearance in that passage. A person who has put on the garments of righteousness ought rather to be wronged or defrauded than to bring shame to the name of Christ and overreact. One of the characteristics that these clothes or one of the, the, the relational ramifications of these clothes is that we ought to be able to bear with one another, to have a degree of tolerance with, with others. Proverbs 19.11 says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Now, hear me here. When, when determining to what degree you ought to show forbearance before you confront something, you must use wisdom and listen to the Holy Spirit as He directs your conscience. And some of you will need to check with others. Some of you will need to receive counsel from those who are older than you, or more mature than you are. And some of you will be able to bear more than others will. 
But you want to you want to make sure before you confront that this isn't something that you can that you ought to just be bearing. So this brings us to the next relational ramification of these new clothes, and that's this: that we need to be forgiving of each other. Now, I don't believe that this phrase, "forgiving one another," is just a restatement in parallelism of the previous phrase, so that bearing with one another and forgiving each other are synonymous. I don't think they are. This is a separate instruction, in my opinion. Forgiveness is granted when there's confession and repentance for a sin that's been committed. Jesus forgives us when we repent, when we confess, right? 1 John 1.9 says, we, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Luke 17, verses 3-4, to four, Jesus says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Forgive him every time. But listen, God does not require a righteousness from you that exceeds his own righteousness. He does not say, you must forgive a person before they repent and ask for forgiveness, before they apologize and ask for forgiveness. This is a mistake that Christians make all the time, thinking that they must forgive before the steps toward reconciliation are made that the Bible outlines. That's not what the Scriptures teach. I want you to study and ponder this. If you disagree on this point, think through this. Study and ponder this. If you want to talk further about it, feel free. Go to Pastor John. It'll be great. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You can come to me too. Of course, just as God does, there should always be, hear me, always be, regardless of the sin against you, a desire and a willingness to forgive. Hear me. A desire and a willingness to forgive ought to always be present in the life of a believer. You should have a forgiving heart. But the actual granting of forgiveness is conditioned upon the confession and repentance of the one who sinned against you. But once they've confessed, once they've repented, you forgive. Gladly, quickly, joyously. This desire and willingness to forgive are expressed by us when we obey Jesus' command in those verses that I just read. When we obey His command to rebuke the one who has sinned against you. It's not an easy thing to rebuke a person who has sinned against you. Not an easy thing at all. And the rebuke is, is not for the purpose of berating or shaming the one who has sinned. It's for the purpose of restoring them. It's for the purpose of reconciling the relationship. Jesus gives other counsel about how to go about rebuking someone for their sin. In Matthew 18, He gives you steps to follow. And those steps move progressively from the private rebuke to the the public rebuke. It's more public in nature. If the private rebuke is unsuccessful, then it may have to become a more public rebuke. Going from a one-on-one conversation to one with just one or two more witnesses to eventually, if, it, if it's required, to the church more broadly, if that's a necessary thing. And this is all done out of the desire to lovingly forgive the sinner and restore the relationship with them. And all the while trying to preserve their dignity and their privacy with discretion along the way. Paul's telling the Colossians that their new identities need to be forgiving ones. And the reason for this willingness to forgive is the fact that Christ forgave you. And this tells me that there are times when I will need to extend forgiveness to another, but there's also going to be times when I'm going to need to seek forgiveness from someone else. Remember, I'm annoying, right? I'm likely going to have to apologize to you at some point and confess that I've done wrong. I will be in the wrong at some point in the future. If history is the best indicator of future performance, then the odds are that I'm going to need forgiveness someday from one of you or more than one of you. That means it may be me who has to be coming, or that may be me that you have to come to in private to rebuke for something that I've said or something that I've done. And in light of that realization and humbled by the possibility and likelihood of it, and reminded of how it was in the past, the only rational thing I can do is be forgiving toward others. 
Guys, if someone comes to you with correction and rebuke for something that you've done or said, realize that was not easy for them to do. Realize that if they did it for the right reason and in the right way, they did it because they care for you and they want to mend something that can harm a relationship. Be humble and listen to them. They may be wrong. They may have misinterpreted something or misunderstood something, but they may very well be right. Either way, hear them out and be willing to humble yourself in confession and repentance. Those of the offended party, don't just ignore Jesus' command to rebuke or confront lovingly one who has sinned against you. Check yourself to make sure you're not just being easily offended, of course. But if you're not, and there has been sin against you, don't let that fester and cause division down the road. It's not healthy for you, nor for the health of the, the whole body in the fellowship with one another. And the reason we do these things for one another, bear with each other and forgive each other, is because Christ did them for us. And He did them for us because He loved us. Right? He loved us. Verse 14, Beyond or over all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. If verse 12 contains the individual virtues and verse 13 contains the interpersonal virtues, then verse 14 contains the indispensable virtue. I can't remember who I got that from, but that's not my own. I, as much as I like it, it's a quote from someone else. I, I can give you who it was, but it's not in my notes, so I'll have to give it to you later. But love is the single command that contains all the rest of the law. The picture is that love is the belt that, that holds the rest of the garment together. All of those other articles of clothing. And human attempts to, to manufacture and exhibit compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience apart from love will only produce legalism. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-2, it says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I but do not have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Nothing is acceptable to God if it's not motivated by love. It's the perfect bond that unifies all of the Christian life, personally and interpersonally. In a sense, when Paul was giving a list of attributes or virtues to put on in verse 12, he was describing love. It's love that is the very heart and nature of God. God is love. It's the heart and nature of God the Father. It's the heart and nature of His Son. And it's the heart and nature of the Spirit that reminds us of the words and the deeds of Jesus. All for the same reason. Love. Love. The love of Jesus was willing to bear with much more from us than we will ever have to bear from each other. He forgave us and He atoned for us on Calvary because He loves us. And when we as members of His body exhibit these new clothes, these new virtues in our attitudes and in our speech and in our behaviors, it's actually Christ's own love that's coming through you to be extended to another. I think I've said enough though for today. We're going to have to come for the rest of the verses next week. Um, well, the rest through verse 17, so it's not really the rest. But So let me, I need to be done though, otherwise your bowels of compassion uh, won't be able to bear with me any longer. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for just the wisdom of your word. God, there is just so much even in three verses that, oh, we could talk for hours and hours and days and days about the richness of your word. Father, thank you. Thank you for um, giving us the new man inside, the new identity in your son, Jesus, and that you see that new identity when you see us. When we pray and we feel sorry for our sin, you look at us and you see Jesus. 
you look at us with compassion and kindness and you forgive us. Father, knowing that you see us this way, help us to put aside all those old clothes and put on these new ones that we talked about today. How glorious we'll look when we wear those things. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand, if you will, for the benediction. You are God's chosen. You are holy. You are beloved. And you are forgiven. In light of these things, adorn your life with the virtues of His love. Depart in His peace. Amen.